It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they've found to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Jenny, today we have with us my really good friend. I call her my ride and die. She will be the person who will pick up the shovel and go help me bury the bodies. <laughs> it's a true story. You should not say that out loud, Michelle, but okay, you just did. I tell everyone that. She okay, so is, this is Brooke. She is my, my best friend. How and long have you two known each other, ladies? Oh, let's see. Oh. I moved into the ward. What year was 2015. that? 2015. 2015. Is, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that's still fairly recent to be your ride and die kind of gal. Yeah, but, new, but yeah, we went fast and furious. Okay, so oh, I love it. So I move in. She's a hairdresser. I had uh, my hairdresser had just kind of like I think she was sick or had surgery or something. Anyway, we ended up starting. I found out she was a hairdresser, and I went and I had her do my hair. So she's my hairdresser, and she has been since 2015. And then she was doing lashes, and I used to do lashes when I was working all the time. And so she did my lashes. And then she went through a tough time, a divorce, and not too long after that, John got sick. Oh, wow. But um, I loved her husband at the time, Scott, and Scott and John knew each other, and we went out to dinner and had some fun, and we were ward buddies at the time, and yes. and we worked together in different callings in the, in the ward and neighbors. And then she ended up moving, and we just stayed friends. And when John died, she was the one that showed up and pulled me off the floor and said, Girl, you've got to get to this funeral. Mm. <laughs> and she <laughs> did my hair, and she put me in a dress, and she sat me in the car and drove me to my husband's funeral. Oh, wow. And uh, So you two have shared, even though it's it's been relatively a small number of years, that's a lot to go with death divorce yeah. change of life for both of you yeah. that's the kind of and our kids have interacted really bring yeah. you close our kids have interacted she has a daughter who is in a friend group with my son and they've kind of traveled in similar circles and so yeah, yeah. There, there's, so there's a lot of paths there, there's a lot of li- little interconnections layovers yeah. yeah but you know mostly you know she's been my hairstylist so i eat <laughs> Therapist, <laughs> life coach, <laughs> right, Brooke? Uh, that's right. That's right. So I'm from another mister. I am really looking forward to this conversation today, ladies. Where are we going with this? What are we going to jump so, in and learn? Because I bet there's a lot of options. Brooke, there are a lot of <laughs> options, but Brooke is uh, she's going to share with us something really personal to her. And one of the other interconnections that we share is that her and her sister serve on the Davis County, Friends of the Davis County Juvenile Justice Center Board. And uh, they dragged me in. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so this is, we're not talking about the divorce. We're not talking about... No, we're not talking about anything. We're, we're going a different our, direction. We are going a total different direction. Very different for our show as well. Okay. Uh, and, and some really hard topic. So, Brooke, why don't you tell us the story? So I grew up in a, a traumatic home where physical violence and verbal abuse were prevalent within my own immediate family as well as extended family. We had a lot of sexual abuse situations that were going on. So I had a very traumatic childhood but felt very fortunate as well because we put the fun in dysfunctional and I felt true story um, I was a part of, was a, part of a, <laughs> a really large wonderful family the youngest of seven siblings I'm an aunt to like 
45 oh my goodness. and nephews. So I was the wedding coordinator and I was the babysitter and I was the one that did the t-shirts at the family reunion and just very much felt that family was who you could count on in life and, you know, friends come and go, but family is who you can count on and that's who you can trust. So fast forward, I have a small family of three children. I've got a son and two daughters and I had been married to a wonderful man. Michelle mentioned he is a great father and a really good friend of mine still to this day. We have managed to remain excellent friends. But our relationship had just come to an end. We kind of grew up together and grew apart. And we're ending our marriage of 24 years. So it was a very emotional time, as you can imagine. A month after we announced our divorce, I found out about a very serious betrayal involving sexual abuse and my two daughters from within my side of the family. Oh, my gosh. So the therapist I went to immediately uh, helped me understand what I was going through because it was just, if you've ever been through divorce, you're, you're leaving your entire network and support system that you know, your extended family, people draw lines. They say, oh, I'm his friend. I'm her friend. I'm his ward neighbor, I'm her ward neighbor, whatever it is, people draw lines. You lose. You you lose lose people. people. Yeah. Yes. You lose a network. And so by going through a divorce and then a month later going through this huge family betrayal, which I had to get police involved, I had to, I became one of the people that the Children's Justice Center helps. And I will forever be grateful for that experience, how they helped my family and my daughter's But I had to sever all my ties with my family, my extended family, for a time period until the investigation was over. But that was just a huge, huge event in life, surrounded by other things. I mean, life was still going on, the normal life of my car broke down or, you know, I got fired from this client or I... Whatever it is, life still happens. But when you have huge, major life events and you don't know how you're going to start the next day or even that you want to, you have to find somewhere deep inside of you some truth and something to hold on to about yourself, about your situation, about just what you know um, to be right or wrong. And you also have to have some serious forgiveness because it was just such a dark, emotional place. Here, I had been a part of such a large family and large support network to then be betrayed by that family. And it's, I've, you know, I've got a very intelligent family. My, my mother was uh, educated on a master's degree level and very proud of her. She was a single mom, and, and yet she was the one that betrayed me the most which was just horrible because if anybody should love your children as much as you do, you would think and hope that it's your mother. So, so uh, maybe a little back background and I don't know how much you want to share. We can take this out if you don't want to share it, but um, yeah, no. I, I'm cautious cause I, I know the story from you personally. So I, yeah. but I, I want to be respectful of how much you want to share, but just for our listeners, I was thinking it might be a pertinent piece of the the puzzle to say that she was going through this she'd mentioned that she'd just left her marriage of 24 years and the reason she was so betrayed is because the family had decided to keep the the information from oh, her sorry yeah they yeah. knew about well, the sexual the, abuse yeah. and, and made the conscious choice to not inform the mother of the two of daughters the that were involved in the actual abuse that took place and not that lie lasted a span of two years before I found out. And one of the reasons I ended my marriage is my first husband had been a victim of sexual abuse. And it just caused a series of problems, as you can imagine, in how to relate in an interpersonal relationship. So my mother was a licensed clinical social worker, and I trusted her opinion very, very much. 
And so to have her and another sibling purposefully keep information from me that would help me in parenting my children felt just like the worst stab in the back. I had sat firsthand for 24 years in a marriage shotgun to the effects of sexual abuse that can have on a person in their everyday life for years and years, just the degree and the layers that it affects an individual. And that was a lot of the struggle within my marriage. So I felt as though my, my mother and my sister, sisters, uh, just willingly signed my daughters up for that same, that same life. And that was a little bit more than I could handle emotionally. Um, it was just a myself. layer of betrayal that was so over the top. Yes, it was. And especially when you learn about a traumatic event, you're learning about something traumatizing. You have your own experience that that has its own layers of trauma to it or surrounding that. And then you add in, in addition to the betrayal of people that you really love and trust. Yeah. And it's so hard because my specific situation was between cousins and kids and cousins while we were hanging out at family events. And a lot of my family, the majority, uh, I would say 90% <laughs> felt I was trying to railroad the boys. I was trying to label or um, get them to possibly kill themselves. Uh, I got accused of destroying our good family name. Um, I got accused of just all kinds of things. And, and things were said about my girls being promiscuous or just anything. It, it, it outraged me. Justifying the behavior yeah. or making it less abusive and more like kids will be kids blaming right out, blaming it right. on the victim and, mm -hmm. and it and it infuriated me that they would assume i had worst intent toward the boys what i was upset about was that we had this long history of abuse where we had tried to handle it ourselves within our family and it didn't do anybody any good ever so it just perpetuates the problem. And I just wanted to have everybody come out into the public, into the open. Let's turn the lights on. Let's all come out of the corners and just say, this is what is. And let's find some safety plans and put them in place so that we can enjoy healthy relationships with one another. I wasn't looking to vilify anybody. Uh, I felt devastated that this conservative family group would think their religious efforts was all that was needed. And it didn't help the boys, it didn't help the girls, and it did not help our family dynamics at all. Yeah. So it just was a really, really low time. And what I did, I had to just strip away everything of, you know, all my family traditions now. I had to start new family traditions. I had to get excited about a new life of possibilities. I had to look and say, okay, I don't have a relationship with a mother and sisters and I don't have that anymore. And that was very, very painful because I valued it so much. But what I had was, and it's interesting because I, my family always teased me for being very social and, oh, you always have so many friends, Brooke. But what I had and what I noticed during that time is I had friends. I had my own support network that just was natural and by choice people that you choose to be connected with and interact with but I had just the most amazing wonderful supportive business and friends that I could count on I started taking notes because when you're in such a devastating place it's like looking you're at the bottom of the mountain and looking at the top and going I gotta climb that how am I gonna get there you don't even know what tools you need to make the journey at the beginning. You can maybe guess a couple, but you just don't know. And so taking time to just be aware and intentional of, because everything was just so sad, 
You know, what brings me joy? Well, I drink a chai, a chai chiller, and it's really silly. <laughs> that dang thing, Michelle's giggling because she knows how addicted I am to that. That dang thing is, it just makes me happy. It's it joyous. does. And if you would like to try one, just go to the Daily Rise <laughs> <laughs> on Antelope and Maine in Layton and just and ask the for the brook, the brook special. <laughs> and I started that, by the way, so I would go get her when I would yeah, go to, to do my hair. hair and yep. I would just say, I'm here, I'm ordering brooks, I, I need this. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys should just name that the brook. And they're like, okay. And so oh, I started fun. calling it that and then they started they serving do. it. And they, they, they know it now. <laughs> they do. They even train their new staff to yep. make the brook. I've gone in and I've had somebody go, you're the original? Oh, wow. So I, I love it. I, I was there and I ordered one the other day, Brooke, and, and yeah. I'm like, oh, you're new. I'm like, and you know it? And they're like, oh, yeah. That is so <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. They're trained. <laughs> I know. I love it. So, it's so fun. It's, uh, it seems like that. You know, I, I noticed that I was being told that I was this bad person, that I was I'm vengeful because I wanted to help these kids and I wanted to help victims. So I joined the Children's Justice Center, Friends of the Children's Justice Board, a way that I can help. That brings me joy knowing that I'm not going to convince anybody that my version of what was right and wrong for this situation is what needed to happen. But I can stand up for victims. I can bring a voice to such a dynamic problem and that and that makes me makes happy. us feel good right we, we get to fundraise for the board to help fund the special services it does special uh, counseling services or whatever a child might need that has been harmed by abuse and and, and it's the a good cause Justice center is we could go on and on about them and the services that they provide. And I encourage every listener to just familiarize yourself with who they are and uh, where they're at in your county. And just be aware that they have just so many valuable resources that are really there to help protect the victims so that we stop perpetuating victimization. One of the things that is very frustrating for me is even though I wasn't trying to be spiteful or vindictive, I and my girls are still the awful uncomfortable when we walk into the room. It's been, you know, six, seven years now. I don't know. Somebody do the math uh, since this all came out. And we are still treated as though we are the ones that did something wrong. We are the ones that is uncomfortable to be around. The perpetrators in this case have all been embraced and accepted they were continually part of the family parties and events where the victims, in this case, were separate, and it was very uncomfortable. So finding things that are true for me, you know, helped me get through it and not, you know, finding that, that joy, knowing that, like, I'm a good friend. I follow through. I mean, everything about your character is put in question when you're going through these life events that are so traumatic and you just have to hang on to what in your gut you know is right for you and true for you while noticing the joy because those situations, sorry for putting it so crass, they suck. They are lonely and just desperate times and you have such a low vibrational energy while you're going through those that it sometimes brings other things. I, because I was single, started a relationship with somebody that just was not great quality for me. And again, learned some really great lessons in that. But that's part of going through that trauma those things just happen and you have to give yourself a little bit of grace. I have to look at myself and say, okay, Brooke, you were having a really, really horrible time in your life when I was completely isolated without a support system. I didn't have a ward family anymore. I didn't have my ex-husband's family anymore. And I didn't have my family. I was just on my own and 
trying to be excited about it, you know, so that the kids didn't feel like they were being ripped off by anything or um, missing out on anything. And so, yeah, I just feel very strongly that it's those little things, finding joy, giving yourself grace, and just being positive and finding ways to get involved and speak up can help you. That and time, you know, time really does heal all wounds. I have reached out to some of my family over the years, and it's been, you know, it's a process. It's a process. And it's not ever going to be the same, but I can still interact with family from time to time and have it be a positive exchange. So that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Brooke, this is hard to talk about. This is heavy stuff. We're going to take a quick break for a minute. When we come back, I'd love to know, without you speaking for them, how are your girls doing? Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe you can tell us a little bit more about not only what your journey looks like from having lost that support group to having to kind of build that back up, but the work that you do with the Friends of the Children's Justice Center in trying to help other families who are going through the horrific path that you've had to walk. So we'll be right back. Absolutely. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're back. Brooke, thank you for sharing this. Yes. This, this can't be easy to talk about. I know it's not always easy to listen to. It, it's uncomfortable. Um, we, I, I know what you're saying when you talk of the family dynamic and a divorce, people take sides or if an accusation is made, we tend to take sides and how ostracized you and your girls must have felt. Can you tell us how they're doing? And again, I know I wouldn't want you to put words in their mouth or represent their story for them. But yeah. my my heart goes out to these young girls to say, oh, my gosh, our, like you said with your husband, this can plague you for years and years and a lifetime. Can you tell us how they're doing and what, and what that what process can, looks like? Yeah, it's, it is a lifelong process. And there's going to be days and times when they are fine and they've dealt with the different components of their situations and they seem fine and happy and adjusted. Then there are moments that they don't and their whole life is falling apart. They're in a fight or flight response and they're just hurting full of pain. So it just depends and varies overall. I would say they're okay. They're two very different girls and they had two very different experiences. And so you know, I have fears, different fears for each one of them, and I have different hopes for each one of them. So I just believe that keeping the conversation open and making it as comfortable as possible while supporting them in their truth is my main objective. And that's just kind of what we try and focus on with the girls. So I'd say they're doing pretty good. They've had some counseling, but... I also know some of the, you know, just just what's ahead and how having a child will affect them and getting married will affect them and different stages of life are going to bring up different issues with the sexual abuse. So that's it just sounds, a, what we can right. expect. It, it sounds so much like somebody asking me and Michelle, how are your kids doing after their dad dies? And, right. And knowing that it's it's going to come back in waves and periods of growth and yeah. time and certain milestones in their life. Can you, maybe you and Michelle can talk to me and the rest of our listeners. What are some things um, we can look for? Uh, obviously, a lot of times the abuse is hidden. I, I'm oh, curious. Gosh. I'm curious. How did you find out about it? What what brought it to light after so long of it being in secrecy? And what are some things, maybe we know someone who's been through 
um, some kind of a sexual trauma in the past or some kind of abuse. Are there certain things that you would say can be helpful or hurtful for family or friends who are genuinely trying to be that support group for a victim? Yeah, I'd love to talk on that. And first, I want to just say there is no uh, 100% right way to handle this. There's a thousand things you can do wrong and there's, you know, a thousand things you can do right. So people's intentions usually shine forward and and giving people the benefit of the doubt, even if they muddle through an attempt, you know, they're trying. And so that's good. But the Children's Justice Center in our case came into play because, and it all happened, I guess, like I said, I'm the youngest of seven and I've got four sisters. So a couple of my sisters got together and some information came up that one of them had a secret with my mother and they had been keeping it for a couple of years. Well, the one, the other sister said, hey, that's not cool. You need to tell Brooke and you need to tell her or I will. And this one sister in question just said, yeah, okay, I've just been, I just don't know how. And I've just been trying to get up the nerve and um, whatnot. Well, the sister that had given the warning had just said, gone home and she's a smart cookie and has done a lot of different things in her life. And she just started asking her kids some questions and doing a little snoop snoopy dog on some social media stuff and found out some information that she just kind of picked at and realized her own, one of her children were involved. And so she went back to the other sister and just said, Hey, uh, game changer. Uh, we're going to go tell her today. So this is happening and we're going to just get this all out in the open. And so they messaged me and said, Hey, are you, what are you doing after work? Can we bring you a brook? And I never turned down a brook, so I was suspicious, but I was like, sure, yeah, you can come and we'll talk. And they came to the salon and sat there and told me what had happened. And and I honestly didn't know where to turn. I called the CJC. Uh, well, I called the police and turned them in, and they turned me over to the CJC. My main goal in using the CJC, and, and I absolutely think the number one value, in my opinion, to the CJC is that it gives the victim an opportunity to go to one place. They bring the medical personnel, they bring the legal personnel, they bring everybody that needs to hear the story to this one place in a very safe, family-friendly, easy environment that's just completely non-threatening. And they let the victim tell their story one time, and it's recorded with these witnesses in there so that it is admissible in court if it needs to be. And I just think that that's huge because one of the ways we re-victimize victims is by making them tell the story over and over. You know, you have to tell this detective, then you have to tell that detective, and you have to tell the court and the judge, you have to explain it. And there is so much fear and sadness. These victims are told it's their fault. They're told, you know, if they say this or say that, the perpetrators are going to portray the victim a certain way and the victims are already feeling like they've done something wrong. So then this just makes them even more not know what to say or how to say it. So providing a safe space for somebody to speak is huge. And that just looks like you not leading them, right? You not providing, providing like, well, did he touch you in a pro, you know, you don't provide and lead kids so that's really great but in in my case I don't really think there were any signs and honestly that's probably one of the things that pisses me off (laughs) in my situation because my husband had been abused we had that conversation with our kids we talked to them all the time and were hyper aware and sensitive to keeping them safe only to find out it didn't work so there wasn't any signs. I mean, my, my kids would say, oh, I don't want to go over there because, you know, so-and-so always acts this way and so-and-so. And I just thought those were normal cousin complaints, you know, and I'd be like, oh, you know, that's just how so-and-so is. And that's just our family. We're going to love them anyway. And we're going to find the good in them. And, you know, I did that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I missed any sign that my kids may have tried to reach out to me with and and I and that's a hard one for me uh 
to hold. But um, I just think a safe environment and a safe space is probably the best thing that you can do at the beginning. Victims are so scared and they need to feel like they can trust somebody. And, you know, that's where to begin, I would say. Michelle, what do you... No, I think that that is all good. Um, As far as the CJC, I mean, they are a great organization and it is awesome that it's recorded one time. Yeah. Um, Because every time you retell that story, you you just add a layer. And it's also a way to deposit information that may or may not be true or or whatever that could be more harmful. So, I mean, it's it's a great organization. As far as looking for signs, I had a child who was abused uh, when they were three at a neighbor's house. And um, he came back to us with his pants on backwards. And I, I was like, oh, what's going on here? And I asked him about it and he told us. But, you know, I think that that goes back to Brooke saying, you know, she raised her kids because of her husband's past experience. I was very cognizant of and concerned about abuse. And we didn't have any family here. So I often relied on babysitters and ward members. And so we had those conversations typically in bath time from the time my kids could talk we would say these are your body parts and as you get older you're responsible to wash here and here you know and if anyone touches you and you don't feel safe about it you should tell someone including you know if mommy touched you and you didn't like it tell daddy if daddy touched you and you didn't like it tell mommy we made it so it was just the most normal thing so when my son came home at three and I asked him about it and he said well he touched me here and here and I was able to call the family and inquire about what, what had happened. So I think that um, normalizing, yes. teaching our, our children the actual names are re- really important. Oh, um, that's a huge one, yeah. And being a childbirth educator, I've always been very anatomical with my children about their body parts. There's a story or a meme, I think, that goes around on the Internet. I've seen it a couple of times where... Uh, a little girl keeps telling her teacher about her uncle who who keeps uh, t- touching her cookie, and the teacher thinks she's talking about cookies, and that's not what she was talking about at all. Yeah. And so um, it's really important to be correct when we speak to children about our body parts and to teach them what is appropriate touch and what is not appropriate touch. Um, Mm -hmm. My daughters and and my daughter-in-law teach my grandchildren that they do not have to hug or kiss anybody. So, you know, typically in families, you're like, hugs, kisses out the door. We offer that to our grandchildren. But if they say no, we we accept the refusal. There's There's no pressure. And oftentimes we, we let the child be the one to instigate that. You know, my grandchildren will run in to see me and they offer me hugs and kisses, you know. And of course, I'm going to hug and kiss my grandchildren. But if they're leaving and they don't want to, that's not a requirement because I'm their elder or something. You know, last night, my granddaughter was over and she was being a little bit of a snot about it. She wouldn't even give me knuckles. My daughter get her, <laughs> got her out to the car and she said, she's crying. She wants to give you knuckles now. So I run outside to give her knuckles and I give her knuckles and she's showing me her tablet and her little game that she's playing. And she looks up at me and she puckers up and gives me a kiss, you know? So it's like, you know, allowing the child to be led up when they're comfortable. I think all of those things teach children that they have power over their bodies and boundaries. Well, and how Mm -hmm. do you help children to feel safe with what would be kind of natural curiosity before that curiosity turns problematic? Because, and I don't know that there's a quick answer to that yeah. question. I don't know that there's a quick answer to that one either. And that I don't have the answer. What, that's honestly what frustrated me about this particular case that I'm involved in is because I knew these kids that were all involved. I, I was the aunt that babysat. And I was there and helped raise these kids. So yeah. I didn't feel like there was... You didn't feel that there was a risk. Malicious, you know, uh, intent. I just thought, here is some males 
that have a higher testosterone, maybe a higher sex drive. And they're being raised in a very conservative household that's making it so that that's not, you know, sexuality is something we're going to just, you know, we're just going to, that's not okay. We're not going to touch ourselves. We're not going to do this. And 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 we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about what's appropriate or or not appropriate. And the hard thing in your situation is that they were kind of in their, well, they were in their teen years. And so um, it wasn't like a three to six year old situation. It wasn't like that natural curiosity. Yeah. The victims in this case, my, my daughters were between the ages of 10 and 12 and uh, 10 and 13. And the, the perpetrators in this case were of the ages when it started They're see when it started between the ages of 10 and 16. So, um, so it was a situation, and not not everybody was charged, and findings were brought out. But um, it was just for me. I just wanted to say it's okay to be curious about the opposite sex. It's okay to enjoy your sexuality, and that should be something we're teaching our kids as well. But we have to do it respectfully. We have to honor other people's bodies. We have to honor our own bodies. Yeah. And like Michelle said, by using, first of all, just starting out of the gate by using proper terms, you know, this, that shows respect. You know, we're going to, we're going to be straightforward and just say, this is what we're dealing with. So I just think so many of these heavy conversations, these difficult conversations, Michelle, that we've had over this past year or so mm-hmm. about about abuse, about sexuality in general, about suicide, about mental illness, so much of it comes down to we're just trying to pretend it's not a problem. Right. We just right. want to brush it under the rug or use the you know, nickname words for it and look the other way. When in reality, it seems that more than anything, we've got to be able to create open dialogue. There's got to be a safe place to ask questions, to, to share concerns, to say I'm not comfortable with that and not shut that down and not say, oh, it's just dot, dot, dot. But this is this is a really important conversation as a mother. You know, Michelle, like you, I, I have babysitters. My kids have friends. I'm not with them every second of every day watching mm-hmm. their every move. And it's terrifying to think that something from such a young age could haunt them for so many decades yeah. to come. So this is such an important conversation. Well, and it is. It really is. And especially in this like area too, because when you're in a conservative area, people think, Oh, nothing really bad is going on. That wouldn't be my and I want to protect my... my children from too much reality and just let them be kids. But that's almost, so so dangerous. It's because dangerous you're not because educating it, and informing, right? And you're not doing giving giving all children. You know, I mean, I feel bad. The perpetrators were shamed, and therefore it grew and grew and grew into other actions. Had it just been dealt with, like, oh, that's normal, and this is how you take care of those things. Um, you know, that's a good maybe point. Things would have that's been a good point. If we wouldn't have tried to hide it from the beginning. It, it, it could have been something that's, hey, that is normal. That is, you know, understandable. Or, hey, we can work right. through when that. When it started at first, it might have been more in, innocent. And had somebody addressed it and brought it Correct. out to the to everybody and into the light, then it could have been exposed and... And handled a little bit better. Better. So we couldn't have had so right. much devastation. Right. Honestly. For the relationships in the family, for the child himself, for, for, you know, for on the perpetrator side, maybe it was just in the beginning, an innocent kind of like, well, I'm curious and and I'm falling into this curiosity and now it's gone here. And for the victim to learn that it's okay to say no and have boundaries. Like there's a lot of little pieces that along the way could have been so much better had it just been open, open in the first place. But we do live, especially in Utah, we live in this society where we are, and I've been a big proponent of this. I, I don't like the way sex education is taught in the schools here because it's only opt-in and most families feel like there's shame in it and they don't want their children to know. But I think that that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous for the children to not have knowledge and to not empower girls to be able to say no and 
when no is appropriate. Like, why aren't we having those conversations? Why aren't we having conversations with boys? Then instead of saying, you know, girls should be modest and girls should be modest clothes or whatever. Why isn't the conversation of like, boys, you have to be really responsible for your thoughts. And you might get to a point where you get really obsessed with these ideas of these thoughts of, and we're, we're talking in a very uh, heterosexual terms right now. Sure. And only typical terms, but I mean, this goes across the board for in all areas, but just understanding what, what is appropriate? What is okay in my approach to somebody else and touching their body and, and what is not okay? And I think honestly, we're, we're in a process of that our whole lives on some level. I know I have friends in marriage relationships that are still defining like consent for themselves of when it's appropriate. When a lot of times the old kind of thinking is like, well, you're married. So isn't consent all the time implied yeah yeah isn't it implied and it's really not and so you know learning to respect those boundaries and i think that we're in a much more an era of consciousness that we haven't yeah. been in in the past and, well, I, and so I think, I think that we need to have these conversations much more I think out loud too in our, often, the public space. I think too often we only have the conversation when it is in a situation of there's a perpetrator, there's right. abuse, right. there's a victim, which leads to the thought of shame and sexuality is this naughty, dirty thing. And we don't, I think, I, we don't look at it often enough to what a beautiful thing human sexuality is yeah. and what a beautiful yeah. thing intimacy can be between two people or or yeah. just the human race, we don't, because we make it taboo, we make it hush-hush, yeah. hush, we make it, we don't. And I think that that is a disservice to our children, but also a disservice that I think can carry on to into adulthood as mm-hmm. well. And I think we do have a lot of room to grow. Michelle, like you said, I think we're better at it now than we were a generation ago. We're definitely not there yeah. yet. Mm-hmm. We're going to take one last break and then we'll have just a few minutes when we come back. Brooke, we'd love to have okay. you tell us what resilience looks like, what it means to you. We'll okay. be right back. All right, Brooke, this is always the question that we could answer concisely or take hours and hours to go over. <laughs> What, what have you learned through all of this and the rest of your life's experiences? What would you tell us resilience means to you? Resilience means showing up for yourself. Oh, um, I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you tell yourself, okay, I'm starting a new diet on Monday and I'm going to do this because this is just something that's really bothering me. I don't like how I've been eating lately. I don't like how I've been feeling And I'm going to do this. This is a goal and I'm going to do it. You have to show up for yourself. There's nobody, not your mother, not your father, not your sister, not your best friend. Nobody is going to show up for you and say, hey, it's Monday morning. Let's start that diet. Let's get you going. I mean, possibly a coach if you paid them money to do it. But it's every little thing. So if you say, you know what, I am not going to tolerate toxic relationships that can potentially cause problems for me, then don't tolerate it. Show up for yourself and honor yourself. And that gives you personal power. It helps you remember who you are every day. And it starts by just those little things that you tell yourself and those little things that you do. Absolutely. I love that so much. I love that you brought that up. And even in the act of like you know, showing up for yourself, you can hire a coach or a therapist or whatever. And that is showing up for yourself. I was going to say that can be a tool that you're implementing. But I think what what Brooke's saying also is that it comes down to you got to show up for the coach for yourself. Right. I can can hire the coach and I can pay the Weight Watchers or whoever it is. Right. But at the end of the day, it's me. Right. At the the end of the day, you're accountable. Right. Part of what I was talking about earlier in noticing what brings me joy and getting my chai is that is how I'm showing up for me. That is how I'm getting help. Those are my tools. 
So if I'm feeling crappy, I know because I've actually got a, a note on my phone who are my top five friends, my absolute ride or die people that I trust implicitly with everything. And I will call them if I need, you know, if I'm like, oh, I'm just feeling this and I just can't do it today. I just can't do it. I need some a pat on the back. I need an add a girl. I know who I can call. If I'm just like obsessing about something, I know I can go get on a hike and let it out and work through it. It's all tools, recognizing what tools work for you and then using those to show up for yourself. And you almost have to remind yourself, at least for me, I'm loving that you say you have a you know a note on your phone or whatever. I Shortly before my husband died, he asked me a question that really was impossible for me to answer. I had no answer. He asked me, what are your coping mechanisms? Because mm-hmm. I'd, been, I'd been really struggling, and he was in Afghanistan, and I was home with the kids, and I went on and on about how hard and overwhelmed and everything. And he, you know, very lovingly but very geniusly said, hey, so what are you going to do about it, you know, more or less? And right. I had nothing. In that moment, I couldn't think of a thing, a drink, a person, an activity. I could think of nothing that I thought could help me out of that funk. And I realized that's where I had gone the most wrong. Because when you get to that dark place, you can't answer that question. And so his asking me that question, you know, fortuitously led me to thinking to really like, I got to have some kind of coping mechanism. Come on. And I wrote down several things. And as I wrote down a couple things, I could think of a couple more things. And I think I was looking for this magic switch that this coping mechanism would solve my world's problems. When in really the reality, it might be like, I just need to go to Fizz and buy a fruity drink or your chai or, or sit down and play yeah. the piano or turn on a, a song and go run for a minute. But in that moment of that darkness and overwhelm of my life, I could not answer that question. I had zero resilience. And one of the greatest tools Brent, you know, gave me having died weeks later was the fact that he asked me that question because it resonated in my head. What are my coping and my coping mechanisms might not be yours and that's okay. And mine this year might change by next year and they might not match up into the self-help book on the shelf and that's okay. But we've all got to take some time and ask ourselves what am I going to do about it? Because life is going to throw you a curveball. There's going to be horrible, awful, betrayal, tragedy, dis- depression. Everything's going to hit us. What tools do we have? Whether it's five yeah. friends to call or a beverage to go drink or a workout or something. All of us, when we're not in that deep, dark funk, need to think of what are my ways to show up yeah. for myself when I get back there. And so that's why I love your definition of resilience. I'm going to show up for myself. How am I going to do that? That might be a good question for all of our listeners, me and Michelle included, Kellyanne here, our producer, to think about. How do I show up for myself? Big things, little things, expensive things, easy things. Let's make a list. Let's make a list. Well, I love that she pointed out. showing up for yourself, you're creating a legacy. Can I just add this? Yeah. I'm, I'm showing my girls how to show up for themselves, and I'm showing them that it's okay. I'm showing them that. Little by little, you just put this little thing in place and you put that little thing in place and it might not seem like you can achieve it, but you can. And that's a legacy, right? That's giving, if it's good for me to show up for myself, it's going to be good for them to show up for themselves. Well, and and giving us that layer of permission, right? And um, Brooke was actually at my vision board. We recorded a a podcast a few shows ago um, about the vision board class that I did and you were there, and, and it's part yes. of that self-love piece that we talked about. Yes. Learning absolutely. to love ourselves. And, um, and giving yourself grace for where you're at. Yep. And knowing that you are going to show up one day a little bit, like maybe 10%, and another day you're going to show up at 90%, and it's okay. Yep. Yep. To love ourselves for where we are, exactly where we're at. I love that. Right now. I love Brooke. Yeah. This has been this really has been incredible. It's been very thought provoking for me as a mom, mm-hmm. um, oh, as a you. woman, uh, just a, you know, member of my own human race and, and society, and a lot to think about. I really appreciate you being willing to share this with us, and I appreciate the work you and Michelle yeah. and the rest of you do at the CJC because um, Thank you. victim advocacy. I mean, of, of all the people who need a voice. We've got to make sure Absolutely. they can find that voice and, and not have that voice swept under the rug. Yeah. Like it's just not a big deal. So thank you for the work you're doing and those who 
work tirelessly on behalf of trying to make our systems work better than they currently do. Thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome, and it's been an honor. I I just love and adore Michelle and support her in everything she does, and it's it's been an honor and a privilege to be here today. So thank you for letting me shine some light on this topic. Hey, really speaking speaking of shining light, do you have some resources, some websites, some where can we learn more? Those of us who maybe like me aren't actively involved in my local CJC, we haven't walked through this personally like you have. Almost yeah. every, where can you point us? Almost every you county county has a CJC and and so that county you would just look up like just Google Weber Davis County. county. Yep. Okay. Weber County has the CJC. Ours has a web uh, Instagram page where, yeah. I mean, they really try to okay. be a part of the community. They've got community so if I events. Do a search, so if I do a search for some of these topics, Victim Advocacy, uh, Ch- Children's Justice Center, I think basics are yeah. how to talk to your kids about sexuality yeah. and, and not just sexual abuse, but healthy sexuality. Yeah. I, again, I think sometimes we only look at that dirty side of the coin when in reality well, you know, it's meant uh, to be a beautiful thing. Yeah, and actually, Michelle, that's a really good note for us, a little side note on maybe mm-hmm. how we can help initiate that conversation in families on how to have help, uh, healthy yeah. conversations. I, think, I so. think there's there's a lot of parents like me that would say, yeah, could you help me? I'm, yeah. trying, I'm trying, but man, I could sure use some more guidance. Well, yeah, it, yeah. because we don't get taught this stuff. No, we, we don't get no. taught we it. We don't talk about and, it enough. And we don't encourage it. And like you said, a lot of parents sign it away. Right. That consent form for the classroom or whatever. So many people, especially here in Utah, even if they're a married couple, they have their own insecurities about talking about their own health and sexuality together as a married couple. Right. It's not just a children's issue. Right. This (laughs) is not, this is a much bigger, which is why I'm a big advocate for changing our education system surrounding sexual health and and the human sexuality itself. Um, because there's conversations that really, to have a safer society, we need to be having, and we need to be yeah. having openly. Openly. So, well, Brooke, yes. thank you, thank you for sharing. Thank and you. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for another week. It's always so good to be together and hear these stories that give us more tools to be able to be resilient and show up for ourselves. If you are listening, we hope you will find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like and a rating and a review. And as always, you know, we hope you will be willing to share your story with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.